0: Alright, good to be with you guys tonight, good to see you, good to meet some of you guys for the first time, glad that you're here with us. If this is your first time, if this is your second time, or your 30th time, really glad to have you guys hanging with us tonight. Um, It's late April in uh, 2020, this year, and a guy by the name of Marcus Patton is driving home from work in his town, Norwalk, Ohio. And Patton decides, as he's going home, he decides to stop off and put some air in his tires, and, and then also, while he's there, to hit up the ATM and withdraw some cash there from uh, from the ATM. And so he does that. He stops, he puts a little air in, goes over to the ATM, pulls some cash out. All right, this is going to get a little interesting with the wind here. Um, pulls a little bit of cash out, and then uh, as he's walking back to his car, he Glances down at the receipt for just a second because, I don't know if you remember this, but in late April, basically everyone was watching their accounts to see when that government stimulus check was going to come in. And Patton was no different. He had been watching that each and every day. So he glances down to check the balance to see if it's hit yet, but weirdly enough, he can't find a balance anywhere on the receipt. So he sticks it back in his pocket and he starts uh, continues walking to his car and he just thinks, I want to double check that. So he pulls it out one more time and sure enough, there is a balance on there. It's just that there were so many digits in the balance that he thought it was his account number that was on the receipt. Because while Marcus Patton was at work, the government had deposited $7.7 million into his account. He could not believe what he was looking at, and he, he looked at it over and over again, and all of a sudden, he pulls out his phone, and he, and he begins to FaceTime his wife, and he says, you're not going to believe this. We just got $7 million. She goes, no, it can't be. He shows her the receipt, and she's looking at it, and they're freaking out, and he hangs up the phone. He jumps in the car, and he goes, flying home. And he said, actually, when he got home, first thing he did is he kicked the door open, said, kids, pack your bags. We're moving someplace warm. And he's pumped and he's like through the roof. But unfortunately, the excitement did not last very long because in the time it took him to get back to the house, uh, his wife had actually started to look this up and started to do a little research. It turns out they were not the only people to have $7 million or multi-million dollar deposits placed into their account accidentally. That this has happened in, in a few different places around the states at that time, and, and in each case, the government quickly kind of caught their error and then reversed it and got the money back out. And she told him that, and sure enough, within about 30 minutes, they checked back into their bank account, and all of it was gone. Um, and, and it was a bummer. They were disappointed. They were actually, uh, the news came and did a story on this, which is how I found out about that, and, and uh, actually... Uh, Later on that day, as they were interviewing him and his wife, the wife said, it really is a huge bummer, but it's nice to be able to tell people that we were at one point millionaires. Uh, So, quick little experiment, mind exercise for you real quick, okay? Imagine for just a second that that's you. Imagine for just a second that you're the one who looks down and you see $7 million in your bank account. And you think, just like Marcus Patton's wife, you think that this is probably some mistake. And so you call up to the IRS, however you do that. You find some way and you talk to somebody and and you say, hey, I'm sorry, I think you deposited too much money in my account. And and they say to you, no, this actually is a mistake and it wasn't us. They go on to tell you that there's actually a a certain... um, very wealthy philanthropist who's decided, man, 2020 has just been a hard year. People need some good news. And so uh, he or she has chosen just 10 people in America to just bless them and just give them $7 million. Okay, so here's, here's the exercise, all Right, The question we usually ask is, what would you do with the money? It's not the question I want to ask. My question I want to ask you tonight is how would you respond? Specifically, would you want to know who it was who gave you that money? Would you, would you try to find out, would you research? And second, if you found out, like, how would you try to express your gratitude to that person? Like, I don't know social etiquette for anonymous million-dollar gifts, but I think it's like something above a, a thank-you card, right? It's got to be something a little bit more than that. And so, so question, take take... One minute, two minutes there with the people next to you answer these questions. Would you want to know who gave you the money? And if so, how would you try to thank them? How would you try to express gratitude to someone who changes your life that radically overnight? All right, go. Right. Okay, back here. We are in, as Randy said, Ephesians tonight, um, and and for those of you who've been with us from the beginning, we are now halfway through. We've we've come to the midway point. It's six chapters long. We wrapped up chapter three last last weekend, and those of you who've been here the entire time. If you've been observant enough, you may have noticed something kind of odd about this book up to this point, point. and that is that through the first half of Ephesians, Paul has not given us a single command. There is not, in the entire first three chapters of Ephesians, any sort of behavioral command. The only, actually, there's one imperative statement in the Greek. Um, In the Greek, there's one imperative statement, and it's it's at the beginning of uh, Ephesians 2, I think 11, when he says, remember, remember what you used to be in your former life. But it's not a behavioral thing. It's not a go do this. It's not a rule. Paul hasn't given anything close to instructions or rules at any point throughout this book so far, which may surprise some of you who might be thinking, wait, I thought that's the whole point of writing a book in the Bible. That that That's the whole reason this existed, was to give us rules, was to tell us how to live, was to show us what to do. That's not true. I'm not saying that that's not in there. That's definitely in there. We're about to get to that. There are rules and instructions in the Bible, but that's not the whole point of it. No. I like what Tim Keller says, the minister in Manhattan. He says, most people, when they think of the Bible, they think that it is this big, long list of rules with some stories sprinkled in to illustrate, when the reality is actually the Bible is the exact opposite of that. It is one long story with some rules sprinkled in to illustrate. It is one long story about a God who, who plans and then puts into action the greatest rescue mission in the history of the world, to redeem broken people and bring them back to himself and make everything right again. That's, that's what the Bible is. And yes, there are some instructions for us. And yes, it tells us how to live. But all of that flows out of the story that this book is about. And that, I believe, is Paul's reasoning for giving us no rules or commands for the first three chapters. Because he wants to make sure that you get it right. He wants to make sure that you get the order straight. straight. See, in, in every other world... Uh, religion, in every other kind of belief system that has to do with a deity of some kind, the way it works is, I do good things so that God will accept me. I do good things so that he will welcome me in and that he'll want me. Christianity, the gospel, is the opposite of that. The gospel says, God has already accepted me through Jesus Christ and therefore I do good things. Therefore, I want to live out of love for a God who came and before I had my act together, even when I was a mess, even when I didn't want anything to do with him, still loved me enough to send his son Jesus to die for me. And so that if I am willing to simply place my faith in him, that he accepts me before I've ever done anything that deserves it. Every now and then I like to just give a little bit of a pause and a time out here for for anyone here if, if... If this is maybe your first time to hear something like that, this is your first time to hear that maybe that's actually the way reality works, and you've never actually heard a concept of a God who loves you like that and is willing to accept you, I give you permission right now to tune me out. You don't have to listen to anything else I say. You can just think on that and think about how that would actually work in your life, and if you want to talk about that afterwards, we would love to. Randy, who spoke uh, just a second ago, would, Alec, would love to talk to you. Someone sitting next to you would love to talk to you about that myself afterwards. So please, come talk to us. But, but for now, we need to jump back into the rest of this, uh, this message. Paul says, I believe he sets up Ephesians this way to show us. That everything God does happens first. Here's what he says in the first three chapters. Just a kind of review. He says these things, that he adopted us as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one. He says in Ephesians chapter 2 that even though we were dead in our sins, God who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us made us alive with Christ. And he says in chapter 3 that in Jesus, we now have boldness and confident access through faith in Him. That is, we can come to God with confidence knowing that we are able to come into His presence because Jesus makes us right with Him. And so the question is, when someone has changed your life like that, far bigger than any $7 million check, when someone has done something that big for you, how do you possibly respond to that? What kind of things can you do to express your gratitude to a person who would change your life like that, in that drastic of a measure? That is what Paul is about to get us to in the rest of this book. After laying out everything God has done for us in Jesus, now he says, and now here's what it looks like to live from that truth. Here's what it looks like to live in light of and to respond to God for all that he's done for us chapter 4 verse 1 says this therefore I the prisoner in the Lord urge you to live worthy of the calling you have received. Okay, In other words, the calling you received, that's everything that he talked about in chapters 1, 2, and 3. You've been called into this relationship with God through Jesus. He's made it possible. Now, live a life worthy of that. It's time to respond appropriately. It's time to live that out. So the question is, what is a life worthy of the calling that we have received in Jesus Christ? What does that look like? Well, here is where Paul starts. Let me start again in verse 1 and then read through verse 3. Therefore, I, the prisoner in the Lord, urge you to live worthy of the calling you have received, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Here's where Paul starts when he says to live a life worthy of the calling you receive. He starts with this love one another. Maybe you were expecting something a little more than that. Maybe you were s- expecting something more drastic, more radical than that. But no, that's, that's where Paul starts. And that is honestly where he'll spend basically the rest of his time. Uh, some have said that actually the rest of Ephesians is basically summed up in the three verses we just read. He's going to basically just give you the specifics of how to live out those three verses throughout the rest of this. What does it look like to live as the people of God in community, serving God and growing up in Jesus Christ? And that's what he's going to outline for us. And Paul, you make a man, there's so many other things you could say, Paul. You could say, uh, um, sell everything and give it to the poor. You could say, um, everyone become missionaries and travel to the other side of the world. There's so many things you could call us to do right now. And this is where you want to go first? Love one another, be patient, be kind. I mean, those are good things. Why is that such a big deal? It is, by the way, a big deal. In Paul's writing, that phrase, one another, in all his letters, so he's written a number of letters, uh, of books in the New Testament, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus, so he's written in 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, sorry, I forgot those. He's written a number of books, and if you count up and go through all these books, that phrase in the Greek, uh, the phrase that's translated one another, comes up 40 different times. Love one another. Care for one another bear with one another, forgive one another. Over and over and over again, he talks about this. This is a very big deal to him and to the other writers in the New Testament. And the reason it's a big deal to them is because it's a very big deal to Jesus. Jesus says this in John 13, 35, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. That is, in the middle of a me first self-centered, divisive world, Christians are called to be something different. And the first measurement of whether or not we are living lives worthy of the gospel is how we treat other Christians. It's how we talk to each other and how we forgive each other and the attitudes that we have towards the church. Those are really, really big when the New Testament describes our life following Jesus But why does Paul and why do the rest of the biblical writers make such a big deal out of this? Look at verses 4 through 6. Here's what he says. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope at your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all. The reason that this is such a big deal to Paul, the reason this is such a big deal is because unity and oneness is at the core of what it means to belong to God. Just as the God that we worship is three in one, triune, Father, Son, and Spirit living together in perfect harmony and unity and love, so His people are to be one. And you may have noticed in those verses that word one came up a lot. Actually, in those three verses, the word one comes up seven times. Over and over again, he stresses this. There's one, there's one, there's one. Um, and, and, And we saw this back in Ephesians 2. Paul makes it pretty clear that when Jesus died, he did not just die to reconcile us to God, which he did, but he also died to reconcile people to one another, to bring a oneness, to bring a unity to us. And so this is important for him, and this is what he stresses for us. Now he'll begin to get a little bit more specific in verse 7. Now, grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, that, that word, grace, usually in the Bible when it's used, especially when it's used by Paul, usually that word um, talks about the grace that God gives us as sinful people. That is uh, even though we don't deserve him in our sin, even though we don't deserve to be called children of God, even though we've rejected him, turned away from him, grace is what he gives us because he loves us anyway. And he chooses to love us, and Jesus came to die for us even before we knew him, even before we wanted him. That's grace. It is undeserved mercy. That's usually what Paul means when he uses that word, but not always. The word literally, most basically, just means gift. And, and so sometimes Paul just uses it to talk about different gifts. Specifically, he likes to talk about it, uh, use this word sometimes to describe uh, specific gifts or responsibilities or jobs. That God has given someone. Uh, back in Ephesians 3, he actually used this phrase. He said, this grace was given to me. And he talks about the fact that he was called to be an apostle to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. Um, so he uses it to talk about him uh, himself, but then he uses it also to talk about us. What he's saying here in verse 7 is that Jesus has given us, when you give your life to Christ... That in that moment, Jesus gives each and every one of us different gifts or abilities or roles to play. And some of those are actually natural gifts that He gives to us. Some of those are just part of the way God made you. And then some of those, as we read through the Scriptures, seem to be spiritual in nature, something that you receive when you give your life to Christ. He goes on in verse 8 through 10. For it says, When He ascended on high, He took the captives captive. He gave gifts to people. But what does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower parts of the earth? The one who descended is also the one who ascended far above all heavens to fill all things. Now, what Paul is doing here is he's quoting from a book in the Old Testament. He's quoting a verse out of Psalm 68. And Psalm 68 is this psalm about how God comes and conquers his enemies and then ascends up Mount Zion. That was the, that was the Mount in Jerusalem where the temple sat and he ascends up Mount Zion and he, and he's, he's conquered his enemies and he's giving gifts out to all his people. And what Paul is doing here is he's applying that verse and saying the, the truest meaning of that verse actually is pointing us to Jesus who was God in the flesh, who descended down to earth and then ascended. Up to heaven. And when he ascended up to the true Zion, when he ascended up to heaven, he gave gifts out to his people. That's what Paul is getting at here in this section. Uh, he says in verses 11 through 13, and he himself, that's Jesus, and he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers equipping the saints for the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son, growing into maturity with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. So now he starts to get specific about the gifts that he has given us. So he said this at the beginning, we ought to be loving one another and living in oneness. Then in verse 7, he goes, and here's one of the ways we do this. We use our gifts and abilities to serve one another. And now he's going to get a little bit more specific and talk about what some of those gifts may look like. Um, here's kind of the fascinating thing. He doesn't just talk about Jesus giving gifts to people. He then, you notice, talks about Jesus giving people to the church. And he gave these gifts to people to be apostles and prophets and evangelists and teachers, pastors. And then he took those people and he gave them to the church as a gift to the church to help his people be built up. This, that is the gift that we are uh, given, the gift that Jesus has bestowed on you was designed not for you but for other people. It was designed so that he could give that gift to the church, to other brothers and sisters through you as you use that for their benefit. There are uh, a lot of roles. There there are a number of different places. If you want to study kind of spiritual gifts and roles, there are uh, four main places, 12, 12, 4, 4, all right? Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4. 12, 12, 4, 4. That's, that's where you find the different passages that talk about some of the different spiritual gifts that are mentioned. And there are a number of them, but here he just lists four of the foundational ones. Apostles. Uh, the word apostle literally just means to be sent out. And so he's talking about either A, the, what we call like the capital A apostles, the, the original 12, who were sent out and are, were Jesus' representatives on the earth after Jesus ascended into heaven. Um, who had kind of a special level of authority and ability to write scripture and those things. Or he could be talking even about like lowercase apostles, that's what I call them, who were sent out by churches to plant more churches. That kind of seems to be what their role was back then. Um, He talks about prophets who had this ability to be able to speak directly from God. He talks about evangelists whose job is to go and spread the gospel. Now, every Christian has that that ability and, and that responsibility, I think. We're all, as followers of Jesus, called to help spread the gospel. But there's some people who are specifically gifted and have a specific role and responsibility to do that. And then this last group, he says two words, but they actually go together, pastors and teachers. In the Greek, they're linked together, so it would be more like pastor-teachers. Uh, these would be people whose jobs are to oversee church bodies, church groups, and to teach them. Kind of very similar to ministers, basically, that you that you might know at your churches, those kinds of things. Um, and so uh, he mentions these groups and these roles are given to certain people, he says, to equip God's people. He says saints there, I think. Um, but saints, as, as we've talked about, doesn't mean special people, it just means holy ones. And anyone who is a follower of Jesus has been made holy by him. So he calls them saints to equip them to build up the body, to equip them for ministry. Now, we're going to explore that just a little bit more later, but I want you to just notice two things from this. The end goal of all of this, of the gifts that God gives, the end goal of it is growth and maturity. The whole point is that we're not supposed to stay where we are. We're supposed to grow up and mature. The second point to notice, though, is this, that growth is communal, that it takes place Together, That it takes place in community as a body. You were meant to grow, but the Bible doesn't really give you the option of just going off by yourself apart from the church, apart from other believers, and it's just you and Jesus growing close together. The Bible doesn't really ever describe that as, as a part of the Christian life. I mean, it can be a part when it's, when it's put together with the other side. But the Bible doesn't describe the Christian life that is completely separated or divorced from other brothers and sisters, that is divorced from the church. That's how we grow is actually together. That's how it works is as we're serving one another and the body that we grow up in Him. He'll wrap up here, verses 14 through 16. Then we will no longer be little children tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning with cleverness in the techniques of deceit. But speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way into him who is the head, Christ. From him, the whole body, fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament, promotes the growth of the body for building up itself in love by the proper working of each individual part. So he describes the church as a body, specifically the body of Christ, connected to Christ who is the head. Um, I don't know the last time you were around, uh, a little kid when they were learning to walk. I was just watching the other night, uh, Rachel Vincent, some of you know Rachel Vincent. She used to, she still works for us, but in a different role. She does a lot of the behind the scenes kind of administrative stuff. Um, and, and Rachel, uh, she stepped back from some of the stuff here because she just had a, uh, her third child last year. His name is Asher. And I was watching Asher just the other day. We were out at a soccer game that both of our daughters ran. And Asher was, I was about to say walking across the field, but that's not what he was doing. He was tripping across the field. Um, Asher's, I think, something like 16 months old or something like that, 14, 16 months old, and so he's just getting that. But have you ever seen a baby that's learning how to walk, and it's kind of like two steps forward, and then kind of an almost fall, and then a little bit forward more, and then and all that stuff, and it's it's beautiful to watch. It's cute to watch when a kid is figuring out how to walk, and you're trying to coax them to you and all of those things. There's something that's really special about that moment when a kid is learning to walk. But it's not cute if like a 19-year-old comes to the table and they're doing this as they're walking in, right? Like that's not supposed to be, nobody goes, yay, whenever you get somewhere, okay? No one holds out their fingers for you to grab a hold of as you're walking, right? Because when you're a baby, you're supposed to be doing that. That's, That's what it looks like as you're learning something new, as you're growing up and maturing. But when you're 19, when you're 20, when you're 30, you're supposed to have that down by now. And what Paul is getting at here is this idea that when we first come to Christ, there's a lot of things that we're learning that we're figuring out. Um, But as you mature, the goal is not that you would stay there. The goal is not that we would stay um, spiritual babies forever, spiritual children forever. God is calling us to grow up. God wants us to be more like his son, Jesus. And God wants to work and develop those things in us. This is huge and important. And often we can be, uh, man, college is a great time when you come and you can hear all kinds of different ideas, ideas that will attack and undermine your faith. And if you are not rooted in the Word of God, and if you are not rooted deep in the community that God has given you to surround you, you will feel sometimes like a newborn being rocked back and forth by everything your philosophy professor says to you or, or uh, your, your world religious professor says to you and you find yourself thrown off, uh, off balance and going, wait, I thought, and, and that's okay. That's okay to feel that sometimes. But what's not okay is to spend your whole life there. God has called us to grow and he, he gives us his word and he gives us the church to help us in those things Uh, verse 16 clarifies that the way we grow it happens as Jesus uses his body to build up his body as each part that is every individual does their work and that's what we're going to explore a bit more after the break for now you can take a couple minutes there's a restroom inside the house if you need to use it get some hot chocolate back here and then we'll jump up here some awards in just a minute I knew it was happening, but I didn't know exactly what was happening. I told Alec I'm excited and a little bit nervous. Amen. <laughs> Amen. Okay, figure <laughs> <at> this out. <laughs> I'm all thrown off. We all, are. all right. Okay, I got to go. On. All right, here's what we're gonna do. Um, this uh, second half, I just want to start real quick. Uh, with a little game, a little game that I call uh, What the Heck is This? Actually, can I hear that in a Minnesota accent? How would you how would you pronounce it? There it is. There it is. All right. That's a, that's a game we're playing here tonight. What the heck is this? And the, the, the way this works is pretty simple. I just ask you what this is, and then you see if you can figure it out. Actually, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to point to this thing. I'm going to give you... Ten seconds to turn to the person next to you and tell them what you think this is. So the question is, what is this box right here? All right. Ten seconds. Three, two, one. All right. What do we got here? Who thinks they got it? Box. It is a box. Very good, Jonas. All right, Alexia. Speaker. No, it's not a speaker. Jasmine, not a safe. It looks like a safe. It's not a safe. In the back, fridge. fridge. It does look like a fridge. It's not a fridge. This is an electric smoker. Right. Oh, over here, you guys knew it. You knew it was. All right, sweet. Congratulations to you if you knew that. All right, next, next round of what the heck is this. What the heck is this? All right, turn to the next to you. You got ten seconds. Give him your guess. I do not have a gun. <laughs> I'm holding it down. Okay. Okay. All right. Three, two, one. I see a confident hand in the back. Is that Emma back there? Okay. Never <laughs> mind. But it was looking really good. All right, Jaden. Oh, Jaden knows what it is. Say that again. A grease gun. Somebody said he's got a gun. You were technically right. This is a grease gun, alright, so this is used, this is used to, uh, basically, it's kind of like WD-44 big machines, alright, so you can use this on like the bearings of tires, this attaches on a little nozzle and you can squeeze it in just like that, so this is a grease gun, alright, next. Well, I'm going to go with this actually over here, I'm going to go with this, give me just a second, I got to unhook. What is this? Okay, turn to, turn to somebody next to you. Tell them what you think that is. <laughs> no. All right. Three, two, one. Okay, we got a team right here that's very confident they know what this is. That is a paper cutter. It is not a paper cutter. Very close. All right. Okay, Joshua, Libby. It puts like books together, right? Okay, there you go. It is a binder. So, it's a it's like a it's it's one of those things notebooks with a little plastic kind of comb spine or whatever. And I was, asking, I was asking a gal in our office, like, what is this? And she told me today, and she's like, you put the paper here, and you pull this thing, and then you slide it over here. And I was going like, yeah, yeah. But in my mind, I was like, I have no idea what you're talking about. So um, it is a binder. I just discovered that today, that that's what that is. All right, next, what are these? Okay, turn to somebody next to you. Tell them what you think this is. All right. Three, two, one. Okay. Somebody, somebody right there. What is this? Wolverine. Listen, these are, these are not Wolverine claws, but I am not too proud to stand up here and tell you that I do sometimes walk around my house like they're Wolverine claws. Okay. But they're not Wolverine claws. All right, right here. Meat claws, that's what these are. These are meat claws. That is, after you smoke something like pulled pork or something like that or chicken in a smoker, you use these and shred it up. That's how you get like pulled pork, that kind of stuff. So, all right, last one. What is this? Turn to people next to you. There's a little bit of light there. Turn to somebody next to you. Tell them what you think this is. Okay. Okay. All right. Right back here. Is that, is that Anna Grace? Yes. Anna Grace looks... Oh, Anna Grace might know because she might have some origins here. All right, Anna Grace, what is it? Uh, it is for getting the knots out of your back. Okay, there you go. This is a Japanese back massager. So you pull that right there. Okay. So my, fr- uh, my cousins who live in Japan, uh, over in Japan, actually brought this to me. That's very good. You, but th- Now, did you know that because you spent a little time in Japan or did you just know that? Okay, got it, got it. thought you, thought you were going to give a much more cultured answer. All right, that's cool. Um, that's awesome. I, I, that's, I'm, I'm really amazed you got that right off the bat. Um, here is the thing. Each and every one of those things that I just showed to you, odd or normal or whatever they are, each of those different things um, was made for a specific purpose. And if you don't know, what that purpose is, you'll never know how to use it. If you don't know what it was made to do, you're never going to know how to do it. Now, sometimes not knowing what something is made for is not a huge deal. Using something the wrong way, if I, if I for whatever reason, got it in my head that this was some kind of phone and walked around and tried to talk on it, okay I'd look ridiculous, right? But it's not going to have any major consequences. But there are some things... That if you get them wrong, not only are you going to look silly, but it's going to have some major consequences. Especially when something is important. Especially when something is valuable. Like if I were to look down and notice that a nail was loose on this and you saw me grab my phone and just start slamming down trying to nail that in, you would gasp inside. And you would think, oh my gosh, I can't believe he's doing that. Because it's not just silly. I'm doing damage to something when it's this important. There are major consequences for using something that is important, for using something that is valuable in the wrong way. And your life is one of those things that is too important and too valuable to use it in the wrong way. If you don't know why God gave you your life, if you don't know what your life is for, you're not going to know how to use it. So the question is, what is your life for? Why are you here? What is your purpose? Let me give you some common but some false understandings of our purpose. These are things that a number of people believe. They might not ever say it out loud, but if you watch closely by the way they live their lives, you'll see that this is what they believe about their lives and why they're here. Um, One is this, that I am here to get lots of money and to get lots of stuff. I'm here to just acquire as much as I can in life, to gain as much as I can. My son just turned 10 today, and so he just had some birthday presents that we had out for him in the morning, and, and of my three kids, my son is the one who loves presents the most loves presents, and he's been excited about it, and he's been asking for things, and he's been talking about it for months leading up to it. What do you want? And today, the day finally came, and he got these presents, and he's over the moon, and he's excited. But you know what's going to happen, right? Within a week, he's going to start making a list for Christmas. Because the feelings that he's getting when he gets those things, as as great as it is right now, eventually it's going to wear off and he's going to start looking forward to the next thing that he can get that this one is really going to make him happy. This one is going to be what he's really wanting. There are some people who never outgrow that, who spend their whole lives looking for the next thing that if I just buy this, if I just have a little bit bigger house, if I just have a little bit nicer car, it will make me happy and they believe that that's what they're purpose is, or at least they live that way, to just acquire more stuff. Uh, Another common belief about why I'm here is this, I am here to be successful or famous or important. I am here to move my way up and to gain titles for myself, to get more letters behind my name so that people, when they know it, they know that I'm a big deal. And so I will study my hardest. I will work my hardest. I will get into the right grad program. I will get the right PhD so I can move up, so I can be successful, so I can be known. There are some people who believe I am here to be happy by getting what I want, by doing whatever it is that makes me happy in the moment. And the stereotypical form of this is like the party lifestyle or hookup culture or whatever that is. But there are more subtle ways of this. There's some people who always have to be in a relationship of some kind, always have to have a boyfriend or a girlfriend because that's what makes them happy. There's some people who, who are constantly treating other people poorly because they, well, they get in the way of my happiness. And and sometimes they end up using others because whatever it is that makes me happy in the moment, that's what I run after. When we believe these things that I'm here to make money, that I'm here to be successful, that I'm here to get what I want, whatever makes me happy, we misuse our lives. And like a phone hammering away on a nail, it's not going to work out very well for you in the end. So, what did God give us our lives for? Why do we exist? Well, we've talked about this a number of times here over this semester, that the basic, in a nutshell, the reason that you are here, you were made to know God and to glorify Him. To know God He made you to know Him, to live in relationship with Him, to love Him and be loved by Him. You were made for that. And then also to glorify Him by serving Him, by enjoying Him, by wanting Him to be with Him. That's what you were designed for. That's how you were originally made. And then sin came and broke that in each and every one of us so that we struggle to want Him, so that we can't know Him, so that we can't glorify Him by the way we love our lives. But the really cool thing is the Bible tells us that that's how you were originally made. And then no matter what has happened in between then and now, Jesus actually remakes you to do that. When you put your faith in Him, He he remakes you with the ability to do this. This is what we heard in Ephesians 2 verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. Now this can entail a lot of things, these good works that we're designed to do, or the ability to glorify God. That can entail a lot of different things. But in our chapter tonight, we have a very specific outworking of this that he gives us in Ephesians 4. Look back at verses 11 through 13 with me. 11 through 13, he says, And he himself, again, that's Jesus, Jesus himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, equipping the saints for the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son, growing into maturity with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. So here we see this truth in this verse that God gives us church leaders. This is the foundation of kind of the giving. He lists these kind of foundational roles of leadership and apostles and prophets, pastors, teachers to start things. So people like Scott, people like Randy who are in ministry to come and do this work and, and minister from your own church. But what is their role according to this? What is their job according to this passage? To help us grow? To build up the church? Sort of. Specifically, though, actually, what he says is their role is to help you build up the church. Is to equip you to help people grow. That's what Ephesians 4 is lining up. That you are the one. It is their job to help you do your job in building up the church. This is one of the main things that you were made to do. To build up God's church to be a part of a family that you've been adopted into and then to serve and work and love that family in a way that helps the rest of the family grow. God gave you his Holy Spirit. If you have placed your faith in Jesus, if you have given your life to Jesus, then when that happened, God placed his Holy Spirit in you. And he gave you his Holy Spirit and he gave all of us, whether you are a follower of Jesus yet or not, he gave all of us talents. He gave you gifts. He gave you passions. He has given you mentors in life. He has given you resources like your time and your money for this purpose so that you could serve others. So that you could help his people grow strong and mature. So that you could help them be like Jesus. That's what your life is for. So a couple of Father's Days ago, my wife Amy gave me this, this smoker right here. And this is one of those gifts that was um, mostly for me, but sort of for her. You know those ones, right? My, my wife loves barbecue. She loved like, like smoked food, stuff like that. And so she gave this to me, but it was kind of for her, right? And so she gave me this because she loves that we can we can smoke meat in here. We can make big meals for our family and for others. I've been living, so you guys know I've been living with my aunt and uncle for the last month and a half um, while we're in between houses. And so we've, uh, on a couple of Saturdays, just put all kinds of stuff in here and smoked it for hours and then just had these big feasts out of it, which has been a pretty cool thing. And that's kind of, the design of it to be able to make dinner for all these uh, friends and family members. But if I were to take this smoker and only ever on that Saturday when we're supposed to have our meal, only ever put enough like ribs in here for me, only ever put like a tiny bit of pulled pork in there so I can make like one sandwich out of it and just feed myself while everyone else sits there and watches or orders pizza or whatever, like that'd be off. There'd be something wrong with that because... This gift was not given to me to just feed myself. That's not, that's not what it's here for. It was given to me so that I can use it to feed others. And it's same with uh, what God has given you. Your gifts, your talents, your money, your time, all of it has been given to you, not just for you. Some of you out here are really, really smart. Like God has just given you an amazing mind that is able to, to think through ideas and concepts and able to process things faster than the rest of us. And you're just good at that. It's just kind of right in your wheelhouse. Some of you are really, really good with kids. It's just, you're just drawn to them and they're drawn to you. And, and you like being around them and, and you're good at uh, caring for them and, and nurturing them and loving them. Some of, you, some of you, honestly, maybe you already know it. Maybe you don't know it yet. Some of you are good at making money. You've got like a entrepreneurial mind and a kind of a way of just seeing things and you're good at figuring out how to be successful and how to make money. Some of you are musical. Some of you are artistic. Some of you are friendly, like you've got an extra, it's almost like this extra sixth sense for what people need and the ability to relate to them and make them feel loved and cared for. Some of you are good at sharing the gospel with people. Some of you are good at caring for hurting people or walking alongside people as they go through hard things. Some of you are good at communicating truth. You have a gift for teaching. But here's what you need to know. If you take any of those gifts that I've just listed and you use those talents or gifts for yourself, you're using them all wrong like a phone hammering a nail, like a smoker that's only used to feed yourself. God gave you your life along with all the gifts that come with it so that you could use it to glorify Him and serve others. 1 Peter 4.10, I I mentioned the the gift chapters, Ephesians 12, I'm sorry, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4. Here's what 1 Peter 4 says about gifts. He says this, Just as each one has received a gift, use it to serve others as good stewards of the Varied grace of God, that is a steward is somebody whose job is to take care of their boss's stuff and put it to good use. So when I get this gift, it's not mine, it's actually been God's this whole time. He gave it to me so I could put it to use for him so I could put it to use by serving other people around us. That is what we are made to do. So here's the question. What do we do with this information? What do we do with this idea? Let me give you three things, and then we'll wrap up. Number one, start now. I think I talked about this a month ago when we talked about having a ministry mindset. If you're not serving, if, if you're not serving in some capacity, if you're not finding a way to use your gifts and talents to help others to build up the church, I want to encourage you to do that. To start serving simple, start serving your roommates. Be the person around the house who is willing to do the things others don't want to do, to clean the dishes, to clean the bathroom, to, to care for them and their needs around them. Start serving in a church, in a local church here, on a greeting team or cleaning or setting up. A lot of you show up here every week and make this thing happen because you come here early to set up and then you stick around and you tear down afterwards. Thank you for what you do to serve the body of Christ. Thank you for making this possible each week by serving in that way. Serve in here, serve at Kids Church, whatever it is. By the way, we still need one more guy on our Kids Church team, right, Randy? We still need one more guy to help us serve once a month with Kids Church at Sunnybrook. If you're interested in that, come talk to Randy. Start now. Second, make a habit of asking, why did God give me this? As you begin to realize the things that you're good at, as you begin to see the things that you're passionate about and the resources that you have, whether those be material resources or mental resources or spiritual resources, ask this question, why did God give these to me? What does he want me to do with this gift? By the way, we're going to have an opportunity uh, to do something about this actually next week. Um, a ministry in our church that helps serve orphans around the world. We're going to take up an offering here at the table to bless that ministry. You'll hear a little bit more about that in just a bit. But it's a way of going, I've got these resources, I've got some money, and it's not all for me. So what can I do with it? Why does God give it to me? What does He want me to do with it? We'll have an opportunity to give some of that next week. Number three, point out gifts in others. And help them see how God might want them to use those gifts. Point out gifts in others. When you are blessed or encouraged by someone as they are using their talents to serve you or to serve the church and you get to benefit from it, this is something that's been big on me in the last few years that I've kind of realized is I need to do a better job of letting people know that. When God has used someone, because honestly, and I know some of you are thinking this right now, I don't know what my gift is. I don't know what my talents are. Sometimes it's hard to figure out what is it in me that I need to be using for God and His kingdom. What am I supposed to do? I don't, I don't even know what my gifts and abilities are. It has been, I have benefited greatly from having people in the church who have pulled me aside and said, hey, I want you to know I see this gift in you. Or, hey, I want you to know I was really blessed by you doing this. And it, it opened my eyes to see something that God had given me, not for me, but for other people. And so take the time to encourage brothers and sisters when you've been encouraged by them and encourage them to use their gifts to keep doing those things for God and his glory. This is what your life is for. This is what you were made to do to glorify God. And there are a number of different ways to do that. But one of the primary ways that you will do that is by serving others and by building up his church. Let me pray and we'll be done for tonight. Dear Father in heaven, you have given us more through Jesus Christ than we could ever possibly hope to repay. And so we're not repaying you, but we do want to respond in gratitude and love towards you. And I pray that the truths of what Jesus has done would reverberate in us and that we would have our eyes open to that more and more so that it would just be natural to want to serve you, that it would be natural to want to serve other people. Please let your Holy Spirit do that in us this evening and as we go away from here. And I pray for uh, the men and women sitting here tonight that you would help them to understand the way that you, you have gifted them and help them to have a passion for using that gift to serve others and to build up your church and to further your kingdom. I ask you that, Lord, in the name of Jesus. Amen.